Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Redemption Hill. Um, if this is one of your first times with us, we are glad that you are here. Um, and I want to say that it's actually a, a good time for you to be here. If this is one of the first times you've come to the church or, or, or you're, you're checking things out or you've been here once or twice, uh, this is actually a good time to actually come and, and be with us because starting this week, we're actually going to start a new series where we're going to talk a little bit honestly about who we are, uh, what we believe God has called us to do as a church and be as a church. Uh, hopefully over the next few weeks we'll have a relatively honest and, and frank discussion about why we do the things that we do, the philosophy behind the way that we do what we do. Um, and, and so the next few weeks you'll get a chance to, to kind of peek under the hood uh, to see a little more about who we are as a church and to little, learn a little bit more about us. So it's a good time to be here. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that you find yourself welcomed here. Um, and, and I will try to keep... Um, See, I don't wear a watch. Um, so I will try to keep an eye on the clock this morning so that you can spend some more time with one another and get to know a little bit more about what we're doing in our groups at the end of the service. Uh, so let me pray for us, and, and we'll get started. Father God, thank you again for this unbelievable privilege that you've given us to come together as your people to learn about you, uh, to be transformed by you, to submit ourselves to you, and to be changed into the, the likeness of your son, to have our soul uh, transformed, to have your character and your desires and your passions weaved into our heart. We've come together, Lord, this morning to be changed by you, uh, to learn more about you, to submit ourselves to you, that we could be satisfied in you. And we do these things this morning not out of any obligation, uh, not out of any sense of duty or out of any effort to, to earn something from you, but simply because you have shown great love and mercy towards us in saving us and calling us to yourself. And now we ask by your grace and by your spirit, we are changed by you into your likeness and, and we can grow in our appreciation for who you are and what you have called us to do and who you've called us to be. We ask these things that you may be glorified, that your name may be made great in this place, in these lives, and in this city. And Lord, that we may find great satisfaction and joy in you. We ask these things in the name of your great son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that this could be a reality. Amen. And let me say this from the front end of things, and I'll say it on the back end, and I'll say it in the weeks to come. Uh, as we spend time talking about what God has called us to be as a church and what God has called his church to be and what God has called his church to do and, and the power that God has given his church to do and be all that he has called them to be, I want to say this on the front end. When we talk about how we are working that out in this church, we are not saying that we are the only legitimate church in the city. When we talk about what God is calling us to do and who he's calling us to be over the next several weeks, we're not saying that we've got it all figured out. That Redemption Hill is God's answer to all of the problems in Richmond and throughout the world. And that if you don't find yourself at Redemption Hill and don't commit yourself to Redemption Hill and are not a part of what God is doing at Redemption Hill, then somehow you've missed God's plan for the nations and for the city. So don't hear us saying that when we talk about what God is calling us to do and who he's calling us to be because the reality of it is we're just, we're just a church in, in the city. There are other great churches in the city of Richmond. There are other great churches in the Commonwealth of Virginia. There are other fantastic churches in this country and in this region who God is working mightily through to see lives transformed and nations reached and cities transformed. So don't hear us, myself, Chris, Ray, any of us who are talking over the next several weeks, don't hear us say that we've got it all figured out because by virtue of me being here, you can pretty much guarantee we're far from perfect. By, you know, by virtue of, of my presence and and my leadership, you can, you can pretty much guarantee there are going to be some things that are a little, bit, a little bit off. But the one thing that we can promise and the one thing that we can guarantee is that by God's grace, we have submitted ourselves to his word to try to be the people that he is calling us to be. And we are planning and praying and searching our hearts and our intentions and our motivations to do all that we do and to structure what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be according to what he has told us about himself in the word the authority that we have to be who God has called us to be, to do what God has called us to do, and to stand here and proclaim the good news of what God has done in Jesus is an authority that comes to us not by virtue of our job, not by virtue of the fact that I can stand up here with a microphone and talk and not get the shakes and worry about what people think. It's not a virtue that we have assumed upon ourselves. It's an authority and a virtue that's come solely because of Scripture. 
And so we submit ourselves to what God has told us about himself in his word, and we submit the purposes and plans of this church to what God has told us about himself in this word. So when you hear us for the next few weeks, please, again, this is probably the fourth time I've said it, and I'll say it more, don't hear us saying that we've got it all figured out. And don't hear us saying that, that we're the end-all, be-all. That's not what we're saying. But we are a church who's submitting ourselves to God for his purposes, by his grace, that he might use us that he might use us, our lives, might use the breath that he's given us to achieve his purposes for his creation in the time that he's given us, in the period of time that he's allotted to us. And in the next 40 to 50 years that I've got with you, that's what I can promise you. That's what I can tell you. So as we go the next few weeks, we're a church. We're a church in the city of Richmond. And we're a church who is working and praying and sacrificing and serving by God's grace to be what he has called us to be. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about what God's purposes for his church are as we set the stage for the next few weeks when we talk about how that continues to work itself out in the life of this one local church in Richmond, one of many churches who are seeking to be the people of God, performing the works of God by the power of God, that his plans and purposes might be made known in this city. That's what we're going to be doing. You got it? Clear? No illusions of perfection, no illusions of grandeur, no illusions of superiority. Um, if they're still there, by God's grace, we'll, we'll chip away at them. But for the last few weeks, um, I should probably say several weeks, uh, we've spent time unpacking the reality that by being a virtue of God's creation, by being human, by being man, by being woman, by the virtue of being part of God's unbelievably beautiful and wonderful creation, we have been swept up into this grand story that gives shape and gives meaning and gives direction and gives the purpose to who we are and who we've been called to be and what we've been called to do, that, that God in his infinite and glorious wisdom and and power, and, and beauty created everything that exists, including you and I, including man, including woman. And from the beginning of that time when he spoke and all things came into being, there was this unbelievably beautiful rhythm and relationship between what God created and himself, between the creator and the creation, and between one created order and the rest of creation, that there was this unbelievably intricate rhythm to how we depended upon God for our very existence and for our joy and our satisfaction. And as we depended upon God and, and we did the work of stewarding his creation and beautifying his creation and releasing from what God created the beauty and the grandeur of what he made, that it would reflect him in even greater measures we did that in dependence upon him and, and, and had a gratitude and appreciation for who he was, that his glory was reflected and our joy was made full and there was this unbelievable rhythm to that life. And I can give you a visual for what we've talked about. That lasted, you've got your Bible, let's see, that lasted about that long, that the Bible was this unbelievable story that we have been swept up into by virtue of God's creation. And it started with that relationship and that rhythm and that life of joy and gratitude. And it lasted really not even that long. It lasted the first two chapters of the record of the Bible. And chapter three actually starts on the back of this page. So it lasted one and a half of those. The rest of what we've got in here is the story of how after sin entered God's good creation and glorious creation, the rhythm that had been created and the joy that had been created was fractured and, and shattered and, and splintered apart. And the rest of uh, that great story in Scripture begins to unfold the realities of what happened when the, re the, re the relationship between what God created and, and who he was as creator gets disjointed and gets out of jank. And instead of loving and serving God as his creation and finding joy and satisfaction in him, we as, as humans take what God created and instead of using it to reflect his glory, we begin to use it for our own purposes. So, so things like food cease to be a way that we could express gratitude 
for who God is. We could sit down with a meal and all of its smells and its beauty and its taste and its color and its texture and the wisdom behind the, 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 the glory of God in his brain speaking those things into creation that we could take those things and put them together and they would be this unbelievable meal that we could grab people together around and, and talk and share our life and share that food and in doing that we, we rejoice in who he was and his wisdom for creating it instead of doing that things like food the simple realities of food became a way in which we could serve ourselves and our own purposes and what was meant to feast and celebrate and bring joy and glory to god served as a way to fill our stomachs and became gluttonous and and hoarding and and the realities of God's good creation became ways that we began to serve ourselves. And, and instead of serving one another in a way that reflected his character towards us, we began to use one another. And, and, and there's this unbelievable story. We could go story after story after story throughout all of Scripture. And we talked about this for the last few weeks to how the Bible begins to unpack the reality of once sin entered into God's creation, entered into the story, the rhythm of life just gets broken and just gets janked and there's shame and there's separation and there's guilt and we're no longer at one and at peace with God and no longer at one and peace with one another. But right there in the beginning of that story, right there in the beginning, that one little page that dangles, as short as that relationship and that rhythm seemed to last, God entered in immediately. And he began to speak of a day that would come when what he had created would be made right again. When what was wrong would be made right. He began to speak, even in that next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 3, of a promise that would come, when a day would come, when what had brought such sin and, and disunity and harmony into his creation would be defeated. And what would be made right the things that would be restored to their original glory. He spoke in the very beginning of that. And, and God's purpose from the beginning God's purpose from his early back in Genesis 3 was that he would be on a mission to restore what had been broken because of sin. And ultimately that story reaches a climax which we spent the last several weeks talking about, about how God not only just didn't choose to speak and fix things, he didn't just choose to send money or a repair manual or, or, or mechanics or some kind, of, some kind of, I don't know, system to restore what had been broken, God actually in his grace and in his mercy chose to enter into the, the fractured reality that had come because of sin. And in Jesus, he, we talk about it all the time, he lived the life that we were created to live in perfect dependence upon God, in joy before God, in satisfaction of God, the very life that we were created to live that lasted that short chapter and a half in, in Genesis that Jesus came and he lived the way that we were created to live and then out of unbelievable mercy, an unbelievable grace. He, he laid himself down on the cross and died to pay the price for the life that we choose to live instead, the life that sin had interrupted and shattered and fractured. And that God did not wait for us to figure out how to fix what had gone wrong, that God came and he entered into the circumstance and he took it upon himself to begin the process of fulfilling the promise that he made to make right what sin had so destroyed, what sin had so broken. So in the midst of chaos, God intervenes. In the midst of guilt, God intervenes. In the midst of shame and destruction and separation, God intervenes. And in God comes reconciliation and forgiveness and righteousness and justice and beauty and joy. That's what we've been unpacking for the last several weeks, that we are caught up in this unbelievable story of redemption and restoration. But here's my fear, and this is how we're going to go for the rest of the morning and what will give shape and context to the rest of the weeks uh, over the next probably three or four weeks. Here's my fear. All too often, at least in, 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 in the American church, I'm not going to speak for the rest of the churches all over the world because I haven't visited them all, and I'm not fully convinced of, of how they operate and why. Here's my fear with us, though. We tend to take God's unbelievable story of redemption, the unbelievable realities of, of reconciliation and forgiveness and justification and cleansing and adoption and restoration, all of those things that we talk about. And we tend to take all that we've talked about in the last several weeks and the stories of salvation and bring them all together to terminate on ourselves. In this culture, I will say at least... We tend to listen to the story of salvation and declare the greatness of God's promise towards us in Jesus and his promises to forgive and redeem and cleanse and we take those things for ourselves. We hold on to those things. We celebrate those things, but we hold on to, on to them so tight that we allow them to terminate on ourselves. 
Here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. God's intention in making right what had gone so terribly wrong, God's intention from day one was not that his salvation would terminate on you individually, but that in redeeming you, in calling you to himself, in restoring your heart, transforming your soul, forgiving your sin, cleansing your conscience, removing your sins from his presence and from your record forever, and calling you his children and changing you into the image and likeness of his son, none of that was simply just for you. None of that was simply to terminate on your life. None of that was simply to terminate on the years and days and numbers of breath that God has given you in this shot that you've got on this earth. That was never God's intended purpose. But the problem is, in this culture in particular, we tend to take the realities of salvation and the story of redemption and narrow it all down to our life and our time right now. And that was never his intended purpose. From the very beginning, let me say it this way, from the very beginning, and we'll look at it in Scripture here in just a second, God's intention was to call and redeem a people so that his glory and his greatness and his character would be reflected to the nations. God has saved you and called you to himself and begun the process of transforming you into the image of his son that you might be an instrument of redemption to a world that is desperate and hurting and dark and lost and suffering under the ravages of the sin that has broken the fabric of the universe that God has created. He has called you and brought you together as a people in a church to be reflections of his glory and of his purposes. It was never to terminate on you. And the problem is, in this culture at least, we tend to take the story, bring it all down, and allow it to terminate on our life. The problem is, when you do that, when you take the story of God's redemption and the story of God's salvation and you shrink it down to the size of your own life and your own world and your own soul, Not only do you diminish the grandeur of God's wisdom and his plan, but you put yourself square in the center of God's redemptive purposes for all of history where you were never intended to be. We were never intended to be the center of God's redemptive plan and redemptive story. God's plan from the beginning was that he would be a light and a transforming agent unto the nations. Genesis chapter 12, famous place. I don't think you're going to see it on your, on your screen. Um, I didn't put all these scriptures up on the PowerPoint this morning because there's going to be too many that are too long. But in Genesis chapter 12, God has, has come and he has spoken to a man named Abram who will eventually be renamed by God Abraham. And this is what he says in calling Abraham to himself. This is where all this begins to take shape. He says this, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, famous passage if you've been around church very long. God says, I will make you a great nation. He's talking to Abraham. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Here's why. God's going to give you a so what in this. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the beginning, God has promised to Adam and Eve, after the entrance of sin and the disruption of this beautiful rhythm and harmony in creation, he promised to Adam and Eve that he would come and he would fulfill a promise to his people to make right what sin had gone wrong, that through them he would bless, he would heal, he would restore, he would bring joy, he would be the agent of this process of making right what has gone wrong. And he comes to Abraham and he says, look, here's what I'm going to do. All that we've talked about in the last several weeks started right here. I'm going to call you to myself. I'm going to make you my people, and in you I will bless you, and I will make your name great. In fact, he told Abram to go out and to look up at the sky. If you've read the story, you know what I'm talking about? He says, look up at the sky. Do you, do you see the stars in the sky? Not a, not a rich man's sky. If you've ever been out camping somewhere where there, there isn't the ambient light of the city and the, and the distraction of the city and the gases and the smog of the city, if you've ever been out in the wilderness, out in the forest, or out in the desert, and you've ever stopped to look up at a night sky, he told Abraham to look up and he said, you see, can you count the stars in the sky? And greater than that will be the number that I will add to your family. And if you don't believe me, go, go to the beach. Can you, can you count the sands? Can you count the grains of sand? Man, greater than the number of these grains of sand. Greater than you can count numbers of sand. And that will be what I add to your family. 
And through that, calling you and blessing you and making you my people, I have done that not because you had anything in particular in yourself that deserved it or made you worthy. Not that you could set up a, a sign in the middle of the great family or surrounded by your great wall that declared to everybody around you, I'm better than you. Not that you could do anything to put shame upon everyone else in the world because I've called you. I've simply done this to you. I've called you to myself and I've blessed you for this reason, that through you I'll bless everybody else. This was the purpose. From the very beginning, as early as beginnings get, Abraham, Genesis 12, it all went wrong in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 12, as early as you can get, God is saying, I'm going to be the one who's going to make you something, and I'm going to make you something and bless you, and I'm going to protect you because through you, I'm going to bless everyone else. This is the purpose for which I am going to do what I am going to do. To this day, to this day, you have been called and forgiven and justified and cleansed and adopted and in the process of being transformed so that through you, through your life, through this people that God has called to himself, nations will be blessed. Nations will be blessed. The problem is we tend to take these realities and these promises in and we shrink them down to the size of our life. But that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That is not the good news that we have proclaimed for the last several weeks. That's not the good news of God saying, I'm coming to do this for you so that you can just be you, by yourself, to yourself, for your glory. The good news of the gospel is that without me intervening into the situation to make right what has gone wrong, you would be lost and terribly alone and left to yourself in a Christless eternity but I've come and I've called you and I've forgiven you that you may be instruments of this to other people, to the nations. Will it be the byline of this people when, when it's all said and done and, and the eternal autopsy of, is done of Redemption Hill? Could it be said, will it be said, will the byline be of this church in this city that somehow or another they were able to attract people they were able to gather crowds. They were, they were able to perform works, but, but salvation terminated upon themselves. Will it be the byline of this church when the record of eternity looks back, when generation after generation is gone? Will we look back and see that we fell to the subtle trap to shrink the gospel and shrink the realities of God and the grace of God down to the size of our own life. And we failed to realize the larger calling of what God was doing when he called us to himself and changed us. Take solace in this. Not that it's a good thing. But we always like to take solace in other people's failures and miseries, don't we? God's working that out. Take solace in this. This has always been the problem of the church. This has been the problem since Genesis 12 when God called Abraham to himself and said, I will bless you that you may be a blessing to all the nations. From the point when God promised in Genesis 3 to make right one day what has gone wrong to Genesis 12 when he called Abraham to himself and said, through you and your families, I will bless nations on the earth. I will bless all nations and all families and all peoples will be blessed through you. From those points throughout the story of history, it's always been the struggle of the church to actually fulfill the realities of what God has called us to do and what he's called us to be as he's reconciled us to himself. We're not alone in this as a people in the 21st century in Richmond, Virginia, in a little church, in a gym, in a public school in the north side of the city. We're not alone in this process. And we could go through the entire story of scripture, story by story by story, to look at the failings of God's people over and over and over again and the temptation that they constantly fell to to shrink the gospel down to themselves and to hold it for themselves and to separate themselves from everybody else because of this blessing instead of allowing the gospel in their life to crack open and pour out like a healing ointment upon the hurting and broken world and nations that God put them around. The story after story of the scriptures is that we held it to ourselves like a shell and God was trying over and over and call us to break that thing open that it might pour out that through his people and through the church people will be transformed story after story after story of scripture is the church is failing to be the people he's called us to be but God's infinite patience and goodness with us I can't go through them all but if you've got your Bible go to Isaiah 58 this is one of my favorites 
I think we can, I think we can understand ourselves a little bit more with this one. Isaiah chapter 58, we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses and we'll just talk in, in segments. Look at this. It's kind of scary. It's kind of scary how real this is. But listen, Isaiah 58, this is God God's talking to his people. He says, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet to declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. This is what God is telling Isaiah to proclaim. Here's God. He says, yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. You hear the tone? I really, there are some times when I read the Bible. Sometimes when I read the Gospels, I, I beg to one day in heaven, I don't know if we'll get to do it, but to look back and see how the situation's played out, to see Jesus' face. I mean, you know, you get most communication by face. And the majority of you don't go listen to my sermons on a podcast because you're entertained by my reality of arm motions and facial gestures. If I could go back in eternity to see the stories of the Gospels, to see Jesus' face sometimes the tone with which he was speaking. This is God talking. Listen to what he said. He said, they seek me daily to delight and know my ways as if. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. Saying that they're not. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and see you not? Why have we humbled ourselves and yet you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Some of your Bibles will say, pursue your own business and oppress all of your workers. So here's God's first complaint with the people. He says, you're doing all the things that the church is supposed to be doing. You're crying aloud to me to, to make right what has gone wrong, to bring righteous judgment in unrighteous situations. You're fasting, you're coming to the temple, you're, you're doing all the churchy things, but here's the thing. The very righteousness you're calling me to bring to, to make right what has gone wrong, the very circumstances of injustice and unrighteousness, you're part of the very problem that's causing them in the first place. You come to me all the time and say, fix it, God, fix it, God. Bring righteousness, pursue justice, make right what's gone wrong, but you're the problem. He's talking to the church. He said, you're part of the very problem that's bringing the injustice and the inequity and the unrighteousness to the people you're calling me to fix. Verse 4, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Now, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is yes. I don't know many people well, there's a couple people in the story of uh, the history of Scripture that might have done this. But I don't know many people that would stand and answer God at this point and say, yes, the fast that you choose is for me to not humble myself, but to make myself great. To stand in your presence and to shake my fist at you and say, look how strong and how great I am. As, as really ignorant as we often are, none of us would actually say, God, this is not what you want. This is a rhetorical question that God is talking about. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And to listen to this, listen to this, you ever read this, and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. To not hide yourself from your own flesh. God just told his people, he just told his church, he just told Israel, who he, called him to, who he called to himself, he just told them that the hungry, the poor, the homeless, the naked, those suffering injustice, those under the, the, the weight and the bond of unrighteousness, they're, they're them. He just said, you're, you're no different. Somehow along the way, you've taken my blessings and you've taken what I've done, calling you to myself and making you my people, and you've used that to separate yourself from the rest of creation, and you're, nowhere, you're not different than them. 
Somehow my blessing has become an occasion for you to separate yourself from everyone else and to talk about us and to talk about them. But in my eyes, there's no distinction between you. Why in the world are you not understanding that what I have done for you from the very beginning was to break out of you that transformation and redemption might pour itself out upon the people around you, upon the nations around you? Why are you continuing to be the ones that are bringing the unrighteousness and bringing the oppression and bringing the injustice upon the very people you're asking me to pull out of those situations? Don't you see Don't you see, I called you to myself. What I want from you is for this to break out, for you to understand what I have done, not that it might terminate on you, but that it might compel you and motivate you because of my grace that's been poured out on you to express and live that grace out in the light of other people. They're not different than you. Why do you hide yourself from yourself? Unbelievable. But here's my fear. Here's my fear. When I think about history and I think about eternity and I think about what's gonna be said of this church in light of all eternity, when, when the autopsy is done and he's come back and he's made all things right, will we be guilty of taking the, the blessing of God and the redemption that's come from God and the forgiveness and the adoption and the cleansing and the justification and the righteousness, all that he has done to change us into his image, will we be guilty of taking those very blessings of God and terminating them upon ourselves, and not just that, using those things as an occasion to separate ourselves from the very people God has called to live our lives in the midst of, that they might receive the very same blessing as we reflected his grace and his glory to them. Will we be guilty of taking the salvation and the redemption that cost God his son and shrinking it down to the size of our own life and then taking it and using it to create a barrier around ourselves so that it doesn't break out, it doesn't pour out of our life in transformation and reconciliation and redemption and ultimately restoration don't find their way into a watching and hurting and broken world. That, I have to ask, are, are we really any different? Are we really any different than the church that God called Isaiah to prophesy to? How different really are we? In two miles from this building, two miles down the road, there are neighborhoods, dense neighborhoods and populations of people where there are men and women and children who do not eat for days and weeks. For days and weeks, they have no food. There are buildings that are abandoned. They have, they have no, no one living in them, no one working in them. They're not, even, they're not even decent enough to sleep in. But there are kids who have no moms and have no dads who live in those abandoned buildings, have no jobs and have no education so they can't pay for any water or any electricity and they're taking care of one another in abandoned buildings two miles from the, from the front door of this place. I have to ask, are we, are we, when it's all said and done, are we any different? When, what was it, almost 10 years ago? A hundred, in a hundred days, a million men, women, and children were slaughtered in Rwanda? Slaughtered. Men, women, and children. 420 human beings died every day for a hundred days. Not a peacekeeping force, not an act of Congress. No one in this country batted an eye. Tell me. Where in this country could that ever happen and nothing be done about it? But as a people and as a, as a nation, you can stand by and watch because somehow or another, we've managed to create an us and a them. Somehow or another, we've managed to separate ourselves from the reality of the rest of the world two miles down the way or 2,000 miles across an ocean. And God has said, listen, why, why, why Do you continue to separate yourself and hide from your own flesh? They're no different than you. What I have done is I have called you to myself that through you, injustice and unrighteousness and redemption and restoration and the reflection of my glory will be made known to all nations on the earth that through you all people may be blessed as you take what I have done in you and it begins to shape how you live before others my glory will be made known and the blessings that I have shown upon you will begin to come on others that they will be drawn to me because of who you are but yet you continue to hide yourself from yourself. We take these things and we use them as a way to separate ourselves from other people. 
Uh, keep reading Isaiah, or I'll stay there too long. Verse 8. This is what God said. He said, Then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God has rescued us. He has redeemed us. He has called us to himself so that the same grace that we have received because of what he has done for us in Jesus would pour out through us onto other people and onto the nations. We do not do the things that God just spoke of. We don't take the homeless poor into our homes. We don't clothe the naked. We don't feed the hungry. We don't love the orphan. We don't visit the prisoner. We don't pursue justice and righteousness and mercy to get anything from God. We do those things because of the justice and the righteousness and the mercy and the grace and the clothing and the shelter and the adoption and the cleansing and the forgiveness has been poured out on us. Out of gratitude and great joy for what he has done for us, we become the people that he has called us to be and those things pour out of us onto others that they might know the same grace that God has poured out on us and his glory might go before us. Our righteousness that's come from him will be in front of us and his joy and his glory will be our rear guard as we go and live with what the life of redemption and forgiveness that he has poured out on us. That has been God's plan from day one for his people that he has called to himself from Israel starting to Abraham to the church that he poured his spirit out upon in Acts. That has been his story. You can flip all the way over to Ephesians chapter three. I love this. Uh, this is one of my favorites. You'll hear me preach this one all the time. Ephesians chapter 3. I don't know that a day will ever come when I'll ever get beyond the reality of this verse. Ephesians chapter 3. His plans never change from the Old Testament and Abraham and Isaiah to the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. God's plans for calling a people to himself have never changed. Ephesians 3 verse 7. It won't come up on the screen. Paul says to the church, of this gospel, this good news, that God is making right what has gone wrong and he has called me to himself and he has poured out his blessings of grace upon me. He, I have this gospel of this good news. I was made a minister or a servant. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what we've spent the last seven weeks talking about, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the reality of what God has poured out upon his people so that through our lives it might pour out upon the nations. This is what Paul's talking about. And to bring light to everyone, to bring the light to for everyone, what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that this is it, verse, chapter, chapter three, verse 10, so that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Listen to what Brian Chapel had to say about this. Those who are united with Christ by his grace, his people, his church, are to resonate with the priorities of Jesus' heart. We have been and are redeemed to reflect our Savior. We are called to be mirrors of his glory by his grace. Because we are in union with him, we are meant to join the great story of the gospel redemption for which Christ came into the world. Now listen to this. Not only does this mean that grace leads us to reflect Christ's holiness, but grace also motivates and enables us to reflect his mercy for the poor, his care for creation, his zeal for justice, his love for the unlovely, his dignifying all kinds of work that apply his gifts, which he bestowed onto us in grace, his tenderness towards the least of these, and his love for the lost who have found no home in him as of yet. The church is to be God's instrument for displaying his glory to all nations. And Paul said, not just locally and not just globally, but cosmically. God's plan for all of history is that through his people, who he's called to himself and made his own and transforming into his image, he would not only bless the peoples and the nations around them, but that that would reflect God's great wisdom 
and his great glory and his grandeur. The powers, Paul said, and principalities in the heavenly places. There's a cosmic dimension to what God is doing when he's calling people to himself. And it was never meant to terminate upon ourselves. God's plans from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, and we'll look in a minute at the story in the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel through the church to all the nations was never meant to terminate upon ourselves and be shaped and shrunk down to the size of our, of our own lives. Like Abraham in Genesis 12, God has called us to himself, and he has called us to a place that through us, that through his people, that through the church, who he's called and who he's placed in the place that he has appointed for them, through them he would reflect his glory to all people and to all nations. Unbelievable how he's done that. As we pursue God's purpose and God's plans for his church here in Richmond, in this city, God has orchestrated a plan that that purpose and that mission affects life in Senegal. And as we give ourselves to God's purpose and God's plans to transform the nations and we serve and love and pursue God in Senegal, God has created a circumstance and a situation that affects the way that we live our life here in Richmond. And just as God called Abraham his own and he created people and put them in a place that they would reflect his glory to the nations, he's done the same thing with us. And so in the next handful of weeks, we're going to look at how the scriptures say that that takes place how we actually live as those people that God has called, how we actually live as the church, how we actually become a community and a family, far from the individualistic idea that our culture just absolutely indoctrinates us with and we're absolutely intoxicated with the idea of being independent and separated. God, in his grace and by, for his glory, has reconciled us to himself and to one another that as we live as a community, as we live as a family and we pursue the depth of those relationships, his glory is made known to the people around us and they see him in us and they know that we're his and they pursue him. It's unbelievable. We're gonna talk about what that actually looks like and how we actually pursue that as a people and as a church here. And we're gonna talk about how God has called us to be his people and not just as a family, but he actually uses this unbelievable term in 2 Corinthians 5. He actually says that his church, we're actually ambassadors. The lives we actually live are lived to reflect the priorities and the purposes of the king who has sent us and who has called us. That we are not actually many kings who are here to determine our own purpose and our own plan and our own method and our own way. That God is the king over all of creation and the king has called us to himself and he has called us to be his ambassadors and that means that we are to reflect his purposes and his plans and the places that he calls us to and the places that he puts us. It doesn't allow us to do whatever we want to do. But he's called us to be ambassadors. And he's called us as family to live. He's called us as ambassadors to live and to proclaim. And he's called us to be servants. He's gifted us all differently. And here's the thing. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, so I don't want to spend too much time on it this morning. But it's really been, been gnawing at me. God has called us to himself as, as his people. And he's gifted us all very differently. Different personalities, different giftings that shape the calling that he's given us. The, what he's called us to, the function that he's called us to live out on this earth. But here's the thing. God gave, gave one command to his church before he ascended back into heaven. One command God gave to his church in Matthew 28. You all know it. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you know this command. He said, go into all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all the things that I've taught you, and lo, I'll be with you. The command that God has given his people is to go, to make disciples to cultivate the soul, to reflect the character of Christ, their creator. That's the command that God has given his church, and he's gifted us all individually with different attributes and skills and callings to work that command out. But we have this unbelievable tendency to take the command of God and swap it with the calling of God and to elevate the calling and the gifts that he's given us over the command that he's given us. And we seem to take for ourselves all the privileges of the gospel while taking the command of the gospel and setting it aside and taking it off our shoulders and taking the weight of it off our shoulders so that we can say that we can come to God and, oh, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. We can take everything to God. I can do that. That's for me. But making disciples, that's for a very chosen few. Justification, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, cleansing, that's for, that's for me. I'll take it. I'll appreciate it. I'll grow in my knowledge of it and live out of it. But 
of being a part of God's business of cultivating the soul to reflect his character, that's for a chosen and hopefully paid few. That's not for me. And we've taken the privileges of the gospel and elevated them over the command of the gospel. And we've taken ourselves out from under the weight of the obligations of the gospel so that we can enjoy the privileges. And God told his church from day one, here is the point of me calling you to myself and pouring my blessing out upon you that you would be a blessing to all the nations. And I'll go. I'll go. All authority has been given to you. We're going to talk about what that looks like and what that means and how we internalize that in the weeks to come. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how this takes shape in this church, how we actually work this out, how we actually live this out, how we actually stay under the weight of God's call and his command to his church for all eternities to be a people that reflect his glory, that reflect his character and his greatness to the nations. So before we go, we'll talk for a minute. I want to talk a minute about what it means to be in this city for the nations. We are in this city, Richmond, Virginia. Paul told the philosophers at Mars Hill in Acts 17 that God before all time has appointed the periods of time that your life will extend to and he has set boundaries around your dwelling place. That before all of eternity, God knew how long you would live how many breaths you would take, and where you would actually live that life out. That you are actually not in that neighborhood, on that street, by accident. Those people that surround you in your neighborhood, God has put you there for a particular reason. Your kids are not on that soccer team or that baseball team or that basketball team because they were good or weren't good. They're on that team because God had a purpose and God had a plan. You don't have that job just because you worked hard or didn't work hard, just because you're smart or because you weren't as smart as the next person. God has put you in the place where you are for a purpose. There is no accident to this thing. From before the foundation of the earth, God gave you breath. He allotted the numbers of those breaths, and he knew where he would put you to fulfill the purpose that he has for you in his glory for all of eternity to reflect his greatness to others. There is no accident, and we find ourselves as a people called to God right now in the 21st century in Richmond, Virginia, in a city by the most recent census data. Most recent census data was 2005. That has just over a million people, and 56% of this city chose to respond to that census data and say that they have absolutely zero religious affiliation. Now, when we talk about Richmond, we're talking about greater Richmond. So the greater Richmond area, kind of Ashland down to Petersburg, sweeping around you West Enders and you guys on the South Side, 56% of the people who live in greater Richmond say, I have absolutely zero religious affiliation. That's not just Christian. That's any religious affiliation. So over half of our just over a million population say, I have zero interest or affiliation with all religions. Now, you take the other 44% who say, I have some religious affiliation, and you take out of them those who do not believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the only way to God, and that salvation comes in Jesus alone, and you've knocked out another quarter of the population. So three quarters of our greater Richmond metro area do not believe that Jesus is the way to God, and that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, and God has called us as a people and put us here and poured his grace out upon us that we might reflect his glory to a very watching and lost world that will spend a Christless eternity. I don't know if your heart has been gripped by this yet. I don't know if, you, if you've actually caught the reality of the world around you or if you've gotten as intoxicated as I get sometimes and the rest of the culture gets and surround ourselves by our fences and our flat screens and our big living rooms and choose to keep everyone else out there and take the breath, blessings and privileges of God for us in here and choose to take ourselves out from under the weight of God's command for his church to go and to cultivate the soul and to reflect his glory and we choose to take it and surround it and shrink it down to ourselves and, and live the breath and the life that he's given us in this place for ourselves instead of giving ourselves to be broken open and poured out onto a very lost and hurting world. I don't know if you've been gripped by that yet. That's Richmond. That's Richmond. The most recent, we, we had this unbelievable privilege to sit with this guy, Jim Slack, who does research on a lot of this stuff for churches. And here's the other thing that got me. I don't know if you knew this, but the oral literacy rate, there's this test that the country does to, to rate the oral literacy of cities. Metro Richmond, now we're shrinking Greater Richmond down to Metro, the city, where we are as a church, where a lot of you live. 61% of Metro Richmond scores under the functional literacy rate. 61% of the people who call this city home cannot functionally read and write. 
What do you do? What do you do when you can't read and you can't write? 61% of the people who call this metro area home can't do that very thing. And God has put us in the midst of it. He's put us in the midst of it to reflect his glory to a very watching and lost and hurting people. I don't know what we'll actually do about that. Somebody in here probably knows. And he has put you in here and called you to this place to actually be a part of reflecting that greatness to that world and to the nations. I don't know if your heart or if your soul has been gripped yet by the countless millions who occupy this entire world and this entire globe who do not know who Jesus is. I don't know if your heart has been gripped yet by the realities that hundreds and thousands die a day and have not heard the message of the gospel and the realities of salvation in Christ. I don't know if you've been gripped by that yet or not. I don't know if that measure of darkness and dysfunction and brokenness and lostness has settled on you yet. Beg God. Beg him for the privilege of it breaking your heart. He has called us to this place to be lights, to be instruments of redemption for those very people. And lest you make an excuse, which we'll deal with in later weeks, that going somewhere isn't for you. We live in the 21st century. There are collections of people who are being brought to this city from other nations out of different treaties and, and, and grants that the government has provided who live less than, what, two miles? How far? Two miles? In an apartment complex less than two miles from this very building who comprise the nations. Refugees who come with one bag, a family, a person, a person, one bag, a person to this city from all over the world. No job, no language skills, no family, no connection. And they all live in one particular apartment complex less than two miles from here. You don't want to go somewhere else? God in his grace in the 21st century is addressing the apathy of his church and he's bringing the nations here. He's bringing the nations here. I don't know if you know this, but VCU, just down the street where a lot of you go to school or you graduated from, VCU of all the universities in America has the highest concentration of Arab exchange students in America. You want to go to Saudi Arabia? Do you want to go to Qatar? Do you want to find an excuse for not going there? He's brought the largest concentration of Arab students in America to this city. Mile and a half, right down the street. He has called us to be in this city, in this time, and in this place for the nations. That is his purpose. That is his plan. That is his calling for the church. It is calling for this church. And we'll talk for weeks to come about how we're working that out. Here's the question. What, if anything, is the greatest hindrance to God's plan being accomplished in our time and in this place? It's not the liberal media. It's not the conservative media. It's not Hollywood. It's not Washington. The greatest hindrance, the greatest enemy to the mission of God being accomplished and being forwarded in this city for the nations in this time is the church. We are our own greatest enemy. God has said, I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do not be deceived. Satan and his Armies have no authority and no power to defeat the church. He is not our greatest enemy. Our own apathy and our own indifference ultimately are the greatest enemy. Our own desire to shrink God's grace and to shrink his glory and the good news of Jesus Christ down to our life for us to protect us and to separate us from everyone else, to hide ourselves from our own flesh is the greatest enemy to being a people who reflect God's glory to a watching world in this city right now for this time and this generation and for generations to come. We are our own greatest enemy. So pray. There's no program that fixes that. There's no book that fixes that. There is no system that we can put in place to prevent that. The thing that we can do is we can pray. 
You can beg God for a heart that is broken for the realities of his mission and of his purpose, that a heart that's broken to reflect his glory in your job, in your family, at your university, on your team. You can beg God for a heart that is not indifferent to his purposes for you in your life and for this church as a whole and for his church in this city and in this nation. You can beg God to make the purposes of calling us to himself to be his people a reality in your heart and you can beg God to not let it grow cold within difference again i can't fix it i can't fix it by god's grace we will do all that we can do to keep ourselves submitted to who he is and what he has done and to orchestrate and to build and to put in place the things that we can put in place so that we can be the people that he's calling us to be but ultimately it comes down to you the church is not me it's not chris it's not ray it's not our systems it's not our programs it's not our structures it's you it's you and if the church is going to be a people who are dependent upon God and desperate for his grace that would declare his glory and whose lives would break out and pour out into this lost and dying city and world, you've got to pray and you've got to cry out for God to break your heart. I can't do it for you. I can't do it. This is God's plan for this church. There is nothing fancy. There is no great mission statement or vision statement with an acronym and alliterated and four-color brochure that we'll mail out to everybody. It doesn't exist. God declared his command and his vision for the church and that he would be glorified as our lives were poured out in dependence upon him and poured out for the sake of others. That he would be reflected as great and sufficient and glorious and that our lives of joy and dependence upon him because of who he is for us would spread and it would infect and it would be an instrument of redemption to this, to this city, to this generation and, and to these nations. So pray. Pray. Pray with us. Pray for us. Pray that we don't get caught. Pray that we don't get intoxicated with the idea that we can make a name for ourselves that we could do all these particular things to make a name for ourselves in this city so that people would look at us for any other reason than for what God is doing through us. Pray. Pray that we don't get caught in that. Pray that we as pastors and leaders don't get stuck in that trap. That that we stay humble, that we stay submissive, that we stay reliant, that we stay dependent, that we stay, stay desperate. If we ever find ourselves attempting to do things that don't require the very power of God that he's promised us to accomplish, then we're not doing anything that's really significant for his glory. It takes his spirit and his power to achieve his purpose. And if we, can, if we can do these things without that, I mean, we can market for a crowd. We can structure things for a crowd. We can create a name, we can create an image and create a buzz. We can all do that. Some of you are really skilled at that. If we can do that without God's power, it's really not much. So pray. Pray for us. Pray for the church. Pray for your heart. Pray for your soul. I'll say this, if you... If you're a guest, this is why I'm glad you're here. And if you've been here for a little while, um, I'm glad you're here too for this reason. If you don't have a, a local church home, if you do not have a local church that you have committed yourself to, to serve and to love and to be served by and be loved by and to live with so that the realities of this gospel can be worked into your soul and weaved into your soul together and so that as a people you can go and live and support and love a lost city and lost nations, you need to find a church home. You need to be a part of a local church. It was God's plan from the very beginning to call a people to himself, not that you could live alone by yourself, but so that you could be a part of his people that he is transforming to reflect his glory. The church has been a part of his plan from the very beginning. You need to find a home. You need to commit yourself to a church. Even if you're in college, this doesn't give you a pass. You need to find a church that you can commit yourself to for the time and season that God has you in this city. God's plan for his people was the local church. It was not anything else. We will live and we will work to figure out a way to serve you and love you that doesn't take you away from the place that he's called you to be on a campus, but you need to find a church that you can give yourself to and be served by and loved by, that you can pour the gifts that he's given you out into. You need to find a church. We are not the only church. This is not a, a sell point for Redemption Hill. But if you're interested in knowing more about who we are and why we do what we do during this series, when we're going to explain that from 50,000 feet on Sunday, we're going to be going through it down at the 10,000 level together in a membership process. 
If you're interested in learning more about who we are and how this works itself out in the details and what it is to, to be a part of who we are, then take the, the bulletin that you've got and on the back side where there's a little empty square, write your name and your email down and, and let us know you want to be a part of this process and, and we'll get you everything you need to know to become a part of the conversation that we're having about what it means to be a part of Redemption Hill. If you haven't committed yourself to a local church, do that. Find one. We'll help you. Pray. Ask about this one. Become a part of that process. When this service is over, we're going to have people out here who are beginning to lead uh, our small group effort where we're getting together as diverse and different (laughs) and, and, and chaotic individuals who are coming together, who are taking the realities of what God has done and, and working them out in our lives together. We're praying for one another and loving one another and taking what we talk about on Sunday and, and asking the questions about being, so what? How does it live itself out in our lives together? Get information about one of these groups and, and give one of these groups a try. Take the next five, six weeks that we do this to commit yourself to a group to get to know people, to be known by people, to see what we're like. Don't just take my word for it. Go and Go and see. We, we've got that. You need that. And pray. Continue to pray. That your heart would stay soft, that God would break it. That he would break it for his purposes, that he'd break it for his glory, that he'd break it for the city. You know, I've told this story a lot, and this is where we'll, we'll, we'll close for time. When I, when I came to Richmond, I had no intention of staying here. Um, I came to actually meet my wife. Uh, my sister was setting up a blind date between my wife and I. I came to meet my wife. Um, I didn't know that at the time, but we met. I stuck around for a few weeks and stalked her to a degree um, because I had nowhere else to go. I wasn't from Richmond. Um, I stalked her for a degree of time. Um, I went back to work, and three months later, I moved to Richmond to get her to marry me, and she married me nine months later, and I had every intention after she married me of taking her back to Tennessee. I had no intention of being in the city of Richmond. I thought Richmond was the pit stop for family vacation history tours. I I did not like the city. Nashville is much bigger. Um, I I enjoyed that city. Uh, That's where my family was. And previously, I lived in Miami, and I loved Miami. And uh, I've been in Miami and and bigger cities most of my life. And I did not like this place. It was old. It was tight-knit. It was really clicky. It was cold. Some of you know the realities of that, and you've come to this city. And I didn't want to be here. And for three or four years, I did my best to get my wife to move. Um, And we used to live in Church Hill. And I was walking around Church Hill one day, and um, I was going around around one of the little bends at Libby Hill where they have a, a, a sign that tells the story of the city of Richmond and how it got its name. And I began to look out over the river, and all of a sudden, something... Something in my heart just began to change. I had been praying. I was like, I don't want to be here. This is not the place I feel like you want me to be. I thought you wanted me back in Nashville. My plan and my path seemed so clear. I would work at this church with this person that would teach me these things, and then this thing would happen, and I would go and do this, and the path seemed so clear and so right. I was standing up there on Libby Hill and looking out over the river and God began to just break my heart and I began to feel the weight of the realities of the history and the depth of the spiritual dynamic of this city and I just, I almost physically began to crumble. And I began to think of the glory that was established in the city and the depth of depravity that was exported out of it and the weight of darkness that still exists in it my heart just began to sink and I began to think about the over 4,000 churches that existed in Metro Nashville where I was going to go back. And the, from what I had learned recently before that, the fact that no church had been planted inside the city limits of Richmond, Virginia in the last 30 years that, that, made, that, that survived to self-sustainability after five. There was no church. None. If they still existed, they left the city limits or they folded. There was no church in the last 25, 30 years that started in this city that got to a place of health in the next five or six years. They either moved or closed. And the reality of what God was calling his church to be and what he was calling his church to do and that he had put me in this place with this call and for this purpose began to just change my heart and shape my heart and I began to fall in love with not only the city but his purpose for his church in this city. 
It quit terminating on me and my purpose and my plan and I began to be very sensitive and, and aware of his calling right now for the time period that he's allotted to me in this place. Pray the same thing. Let him change your heart. Let him break your heart. Let him shape your heart. Let him give you a taste of the weight of the reality of the darkness that exists still in this fallen world, of the brokenness that still remains, and of the grandeur and the glory of the call that he has given us as a church to be instruments in his hands of redemption and restoration, of bringing back and making right what had gone wrong, an unbelievable privilege that he's given us as a church, as a people. Pray that that becomes a reality for your heart. Let us know if you want to learn more about what that means for how we work that out here. Go and get to know us. Go and, and find a group in your area. We've got them in the north and south and west and Churchill and Fan and all over the place. And get to know the people that call this home and, and get to know how God is working in our lives. Get to, get to know what it means to let, let this relationship and this community and this family begin to be a part of shaping your soul and, and, and weaving the realities of the gospel in your soul. Get to know what it is as a people to go and love and serve. Get to know us in that sense and, and pray. And we'll pray for you and you pray for us. And by God's grace, he'll accomplish his mission in a very imperfect and, and chaotic people sometimes. But he'll work through us as we submit ourselves to him for his glory. Let me pray for us. God, I often find myself praying and thanking you for not leaving me and not leaving us to ourselves, that when our own sin and our own disregard and indifference towards you brought about and brings about the very unrighteousness and justice that we cry out for you to fix, that you didn't leave us to ourselves to figure out how to do it, but you entered in. You entered into the mess of our own sin. And out of your grace and out of your mercy, you redeemed us to yourself and called us to yourself. And then you didn't just leave us to figure out what to do on the backside of that. You actually brought us together with a people, your people, as brothers and as sisters and as your kids. And you've told us exactly what it is we're supposed to do. God, I ask that you make the realities of your salvation and redemption real and electric and alive in our soul and you forgive us for where we have let it terminate on ourselves and where we've become indifferent to your call to go and to let our lives be poured out as instruments in your hands 